Chapter Nine, Part One, of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter Nine: The Bloodhound, Part One. The aspect of matters had now completely changed. Madame Colucci had at last put herself under the power of the law and her arrest at the worst was only a question of days. She had, it is true, a good start of her enemy, but an early wire to Scotland Yard would limit her movements by every conceivable device. Each railway terminus in England would be watched, as well as every port all over the country, for in all probability she would try to make straight back to Italy, where, even if she were arrested for crimes committed in England, according to international law, the Italian authorities would not be bound to deliver her up to an English tribunal. Yes, we felt that circumstances were at last pointing to a crisis, and the arrest of the greatest criminal of her day was all but accomplished. Nevertheless, one knew that with such resources as Madame possessed, she might surround herself with unexpected defences, for she had many friends in the country, and some of these moved in the highest and most influential circles. By an early train the two detectives, Dufrayer and myself, returned to town. Madame had, of course, avoided the railways, and had doubtless gone off by road on a prearranged plan with some of her confederates. On the way up, Tyler, who had been silent for some little time, leant across to the official inspector and said, "'Ford, I shall put Miss Sperringer on to this case now. I have more faith in her intuition and skill, where a woman is to be hunted down, than in any of my own men, or yours, either.' The inspector smiled. "'Just as you like,' he said. "'I am well aware of Miss Berenger's skill. There is not a cleverer lady detective in the whole of London, but—' Whether she is employed in the case or not, Madame cannot keep out of our clutches much longer. She has probably got back to London by now. And once there, I'll swear, she won't get out. What we have to do when we arrive is to go straight to Bow Street and get the warrant drawn up. "'You look terribly knocked up, Head,' said Dufrayer, glancing at me. "'I have not quite got over the shock I received yesterday,' was my reply. "'But my hand and arm are not nearly so painful as they were, and I am far too excited to think of rest at present.' When I reach town I shall go straight off to Monkhouse in Wimple Street and take his advice. My impression is that the arm will be all right in a week or so, and now, happen what may, I intend to be in at the death. Dufrayer gave me one of his steady, long glances, but he did not shake his head or attempt to oppose me, for he knew that on this point my resolution was firm. On reaching London I left my companions, who promised to call at my house about one o'clock, and went straight off to see Monkhouse. He dressed my arm and hand carefully, and said that I had had a miraculous escape. I then went home, and waited anxiously for the arrival of Dufrayer and the police officers. They came, soon after the hour arranged, having obtained the warrant for the arrest of Madame Colucci. To my surprise I saw that they were accompanied by a stranger, a tall, well-made girl of about five-and-twenty years of age. Tyler introduced her to me as Miss Anna Berenger, and added in a whisper that we were all right now, as we had secured her services." I glanced at her with some curiosity. She was a good-looking girl, with a keen, clever face. Her grey eyes were very bright, and all her features small and well-formed, but there was a certain hardness about her lips which struck me even at the first glance. Those lips alone gave indication of her character, for there was nothing else in her appearance at all out of the common, and to an ordinary person she would appear simply as a bright, well-set-up young girl, with high spirits and a somewhat off-hand manner. Her usual expression was both frank and open, and her voice was very pleasant to listen to. 
"'Mr. Tyler has given me the outline of the case,' she said, turning to me. "'I know exactly what occurred yesterday. By the way, Mr. Head, I hope you are feeling better. Madame Colucci acted in a most dastardly way towards you, and you escaped as by a miracle. I need not say that Madame is very well known to me. It has been the most earnest wish of my life for several years now to be connected with her capture. I look upon such a capture as the blue ribbon of my profession. She shall not escape me now.' As Miss Berenger spoke, the hard lines round her mouth grew harder still, and the womanly element in her face faded out, giving place to a strong, masculine look of determination and resolution. "'Well,' said Ford, "'we have got the warrant at last, so it is all comparatively plain sailing. The first thing is to go at once to Madame's house. She will scarcely have arrived there yet, but we can at least search the place and put a man on guard. Do you feel up to coming with us, Mr. Head?' he added, turning to me. "'Certainly,' I replied. "'Well, then, we had better lose no time.' I have a carriage at the door, and also a hansom. Miss Berenger, Dufrayer, and myself a moment later entered the landau which was in waiting for us, and the two detectives followed in the hansom. We all drove straight to Welbeck Street. As we approached Madame's house, we saw that it bore the usual marks of being shut up and comparatively deserted. The window boxes were destitute of flowers, the blinds were down, the steps had not been cleaned, and an air of desolation hung over the place. Dufrayer and I ascended the steps and rang the bell. Ford, Tyler, and Miss Berenger remained in the street. "'Suppose we cannot get in,' I said, after a moment's pause, for no one had yet come to answer our summons. "'With this warrant in my possession we can, if necessary, break down the door,' replied Ford, laughing. "'But here comes someone at last.' We heard shuffling footsteps approaching. They reached the door, the chain inside was undone, and some bolts drawn back. The door was then opened, and a tall, old woman stood on the threshold. "'What do you want?' she said, speaking in a mumbling voice. "'We want Madame Colucci,' said Ford. "'Is she within?' The woman started back quite perceptibly. When Ford came up and spoke to her, I saw that she trembled all over. "'Madame is not at home,' she began. Ford interrupted hastily. "'Look here, missus. I have a warrant here for the arrest of Madame Colucci, and I demand an entrance, as I wish to search the house immediately.' The woman drew back, apparently paralyzed with fear, and we immediately entered the hall in a body. "'I tell you, Madame is not here,' she whimpered. "'Madame has not been here since Saturday last.' Ford pushed her aside unceremoniously, and we began our search. We began with the magnificent reception rooms on the ground floor. This was the first time I had been inside Madame's house in Welbeck Street, but the splendor of the great rooms and the extraordinary luxury of their decorations scarcely astonished me, for I knew the tastes of their owner only too well. Had I not seen Madame Colucci's palace in Naples?' Had not her reception-rooms there been all too familiar to me in those early days, when she exercised so fatal a charm over my life, and by so doing ruined all my future? The English house bore many marks of its foreign ownership. Treasures of priceless value from all parts of the globe were scattered here and there. The most valuable curios of every sort abounded, while carvings of strange heathen deities and frescoes, executed with all the skill of which modern art is capable, decorated the ceilings. Magnificent pictures by English as well as foreign painters, both old masters and more recent productions, were to be found on the walls. We entered the consulting room, the door of which was hung with a splendid specimen of Gobelin's tapestry. The same magnificence and wealth of detail were to be found here. Madame's own special desk was an Italian one in walnut wood. It was inlaid with scrollwork and figures of the cardinal virtues and the pagan deities. Close by its side was the chair in which she must have sat to receive her many patients. This was of antique oak lined with old tapestry, the back and arms profusely set with enameled medallions. 
There was also, not far from the desk and chair, a handsome Louis XV escritoire, inlaid with various woods and heavy mountings of chaste ormolu. The rest of the furniture of the room was in keeping with that portion which immediately surrounded Madame's chair. The walls from floor to ceiling were formed of inlaid woods, and the ceiling itself was in the shape of a dome, which gave a sort of colossal effect to the great room. But splendid as everything was, the place wore a strange air of desolation. It was only to stand within these walls, to know that the animating and dominant spirit was no longer present to give life and significance to the whole. Having finished searching the ground floor, we went upstairs. The upper part of the house was furnished in a less heavy and more cheerful style, but it was also quite deserted. We were just coming down again when a ladder, leading to the roof, attracted Ford's attention. He ran up and opened a trap-door. We followed him and found, secured in a sheltered part of the roof between two gables, a pigeon-coat, which was now open and empty. "'There is nothing to be found here,' I said somewhat impatiently. "'Had we not better go at once and search the vaults and the laboratories?' As I said the words, I knew little that our apparently unimportant discovery on the roof of the house was destined to be brought home to us in a remarkable manner. We went down to the basement and continued our exhaustive search. The old woman now came forward and said, in a whining, agitated voice, that she was the only person in the house, all the other servants having been dismissed. "'Can you show us the way to the laboratories?' I asked of her. She looked uneasy, but did not hesitate to comply. She pointed with her finger, and we went down a dim passage. The door of the outer laboratory was open, and we entered. There was another beyond this, also with its door ajar. Both rooms were fitted up with every modern device, and excited my curiosity, as well as envy. But search as we would, we could get no clue to Madame's whereabouts. "'She is not in the house, that is certain,' said Ford, "'and now there is nothing whatever for us to do but to keep a sharp watch in case she should venture to return.' As he spoke, my attention was attracted by the attitude of the old woman. Hitherto she had followed us about something like a snarling and ill-conditioned cur, who protested, but had not the courage to attack. Now she came boldly into the room, and stood facing us, leaning up against the wall. Her eyes were dark and piercing, and shone out on us from beneath heavy, overhanging brows. Her mouth was almost toothless, and she had a nutcracker chin. "'You won't find her,' she muttered. "'Ah, you may look as long as you like, but you'll never find her. The likes of her ain't for the likes of you. She ain't like other women. She's more spirit than woman, and the evil one himself is a friend to her. You won't find her. Never, never!' She laughed in a hollow and exultant manner as she spoke. "'Would it not be well to arrest this old crone?' I said, turning to Ford. He shook his head. "'I don't believe she has anything to do with the conspiracy.' he said, dropping his voice to a whisper, beyond the fact that she is Madame's paid servant, but even if we wished to arrest her, we could not do so on vague suspicion. We can, but watch her closely. Then there is nothing more to be done at present? I queried, in a tone of disappointment. As far as you are concerned, Head, there is nothing more, answered Tyler. I should recommend you to go home and have a good rest. We will let you know the instant anything happens. We parted outside the house, where an officer in plain dress was already standing on duty. Dufrayer said he would look me up in the evening, and the detectives and Miss Beringer went on their way. I hailed a hansom and returned to my own house. As I have already said, I was far too excited to rest. The old woman's words had affected me more strongly than I cared to allow, and as I paced up and down in my study, I could not help feeling anything but certain of the final result. I knew that Dufrayer, Miss Beringer, Tyler, and Ford were each and all absolutely sure that Madame would soon be captured but I was possessed by uneasy fears. 
In this moment of extremity, would not the great criminal bring all the strength of her magnificent genius to bear on the situation? As I thought over these things, I was suddenly possessed by a sense of comfort. This was caused by my recollection of Miss Beringer's face. Ordinary as that face looked to the casual observer, it was by no means so to those who watched it more narrowly. To such a watcher its strange look of power could not but appeal. So contemplated, the face was the reverse of pleasant. The hardness round the lips became its dominant feature. There was also an insistence in the grey eyes which might on emergency amount to absolute cruelty. But it was the strange look of strength which I now remembered with a feeling of satisfaction. If Madame ever met her match, it would be in the person of that slight girl, for she possessed, I knew well, a grip of her subject which neither Ford nor Tyler, with all their intelligence and long practice, could own to. Miss Beringer could do work which they could not even attempt, for to her belonged the delicate intuition which is so essentially a woman's province. I longed to see her again, and also alone, that I might talk over matters more freely with her. Tyler had furnished me with her private address, and I now resolved to telegraph to her. I did so, asking permission to call upon her that evening. The reply came within an hour. "'Don't come to-night, but expect me to call on you early to-morrow.' Defrayer came in as I was reading the telegram. "'What have you got there?' he asked. "'A wire from Miss Beringer,' I replied. I put it into his hand. "'You are impressed, then, by our new detective?' he said slowly. "'Very much so,' I answered. I gave a few of my reasons, and he favoured me with a grave smile. "'I never felt so hopeful,' he continued. "'We are in a position we were never in yet. It is, as Tyler says, merely a question of days. Where so many are on watch, Madame cannot long escape us.' "'Remember that the person we want to get is Madame Colucci,' I answered, "'and do not be too sure. For my part, I shall never be certain of her until she is absolutely our prisoner.' He did not remain with me much longer, and I spent the night as best I could. Between ten and eleven o'clock on the following morning Miss Beringer arrived. She entered my room quickly, came close to my side, and fixed her eyes on my face. I was startled by the change in her appearance. The grey eyes had a curious bright glitter in them, and her face was pale and drawn. "'Yes, Mr. Head,' she said, as she took the chair offered her. "'These cases take it out of me. When once on the track I never rest, day or night. I have never failed yet. If I did, I think it would kill me. She shivered as she spoke, and her thin lips were drawn back to show her teeth. She had somewhat the expression of a tigress about to spring. "'You have news, Miss Beringer?' I said. "'I hope good news.' "'I have news,' she replied gravely, "'and I trust it is good. It was because of what I am about to tell you that I was unable to call to see you last evening. Are you strong enough and well enough to go down at once with Ford to Hastings?' "'Certainly,' I replied. I will give you my reasons for asking you to do so. There is a yacht cruising off the coast. It is said to belong to a Captain Marchant. I have had my suspicions from the first, that it is subsidized by Madame. It was on account of these suspicions that I went to Hastings last night. To Hastings? I said. Yes. I spent several hours of the night and evening in one of the low quarters of the town by the fish market. There is no doubt that several members of the gang are hiding in the neighborhood of Hastings, and their object is, of course, to get to the yacht. It is all important to take immediate steps to prevent this. "'But how could you find out about the yacht in the first instance?' I asked. "'I obtained a single clue,' she replied. "'No matter how obtained. And just when your telegram reached me was on my way to Hastings, disguised as a fisherwoman. I possess many disguises in my rooms, and am seldom taken aback when I want to act a good part. 
I went third class to Hastings, and immediately visited the vicinity of the fish market. I have a friend there, a fishwife, who does not know my real character, and who is always glad to see me. I can act the part admirably, and when I asked her to accompany me to a large gin palace she was all too willing. I was, in reality, following two men, but she knew nothing of that. While these men were drinking at the bar I drew near, and was fortunate enough to hear a few words of their conversation. They spoke for the most part in Italian, which I happened to know. The name of Captain Marchand's yacht, the Snowflake, dropped from the lips of one. There was also a woman mentioned, but not by name. The Snowflake was waiting for the woman. Meanwhile the men were hiding in an old disused Martello Tower on the Pevensey Marshes. This I learned, scrap by scrap, but it was enough for my purpose. I returned to town by the first train this morning. Ford and Tyler have received all the information I have just told you, and are certain that the yacht belongs to Madame. Ford and Tyler go to Hastings by the twelve o'clock train, and now the question is, can you go with them, and will Mr. Defrayer be induced to accompany you? Knowing as much as you must do about the society, your help will be invaluable. I will go, I said, and I will send a wire to Defrayer. Very well, she replied. It is scarcely eleven o'clock yet. You will find the detectives at Charing Cross at noon. But won't you come with us? I said. She turned a little pale. No, she answered. My work obliges me to remain in town. Do you mind telling me what your next step is? I asked. I would rather not, she answered, for even here walls may have ears. As she spoke she glanced round her with a nervous flash in her eyes, which left them almost as soon as it appeared. I never confide my plan of operations to any one in advance, she continued. I have much to do and not a moment to lose. I believe now, between us, Madame has little chance of escape, but one false step, the smallest indiscretion, would be fatal. Good-bye, Mr. Head. I am glad that you have confidence in me. The utmost, I replied, as I wrung her hand. A moment later she left the house. I packed a few things, sent a wire to Defrayer, and at the right moment drove off to Charing Cross, where I met my friend and also the two detectives. We took our seats in the train, and it moved out of the station. We happened to have the carriage to ourselves, and Ford was in such a state of excitement that he could scarcely sit still. "'Did I not say that Miss Berenger was the one person in all London to help us?' he cried. "'She is like a bloodhound when she scents the prey, and never lets go of the scent. From what she tells me, there is little or no doubt that most of the gang are hiding down in the Pevensey marshes, and have taken possession of one of the old, disused Martello Towers. There are a good many of them along the south coast.' Dufrayer asked one or two questions, and Ford continued. "'That's a cute idea about using the old tower, and I believe the one which we are to watch is number 59. It stands on the beach by the marshes of Pevensey Bay. The gang are only waiting till the steam-yacht, now being closely watched, can take them off. Of course, we could quite easily go straight to the tower and catch those members of the gang who are there, but we want Madame Colucci, and my impression is that she is quite certain to come down to-night or to-morrow.' Our present work, however, will be to watch the tower day and night, so that when she does arrive we can catch her. Miss Berenger is under the strong impression that at present Madame is hiding in London. We may have a rough and tumble with the gang when it comes to the point, but I have taken steps to secure lots of assistance. On arriving at Hastings Station we were met by a couple of Tyler's agents. "'Has anything fresh occurred?' asked Ford as we alighted. "'Nothing.' answered one of the men, but there is no doubt that several members of the gang are in number 59 tower, and the steam-yacht has drawn off down the channel. "'Just as I expected,' said Ford. "'Well, the sooner we mount guards, the better. We will start, as soon as it gets dark.' The next few hours we spent in making preparations. 
It was arranged that we should go as if we intended shooting wild duck. This would give us the excuse of carrying guns, which we knew we might possibly want for bigger game if the gang offered any serious resistance. At six o'clock our little band, consisting of Dufrayer, Ford, Tyler, myself, and a couple of policemen in plain clothes, drove westwards out of the town to a lonely part of the shore. Here a boat awaited us, and entering it we pulled out into the bay. The moon had risen, and we could see the row of Martello towers dotted along the beach, and the dark waste of the marshes behind them. Ford steered, and after an hour's hard pulling turned the boat's head toward the beach, where one of the dikes ran into the marshes from the sea. This we silently entered, and in a few moments the tall bulrushes that grew on either side completely concealed us. Ford raised his hand, and we quietly shipped our skulls. "'That's where they are,' he whispered, pointing to one of the towers about two hundred yards off. "'There's not a light visible, but they are there, and no mistake. Now what we have to do is this. We will leave the boat here, and crawl up under cover of the shingle ridge. We shall be quite close to the tower there, and we can lie in wait, unseen by the gang.' How madam will come, if to-night at all, by boat or otherwise, it is impossible to say, but at any rate, whenever she arrives she cannot escape us. There is the steam-yacht now, he added, pointing out to sea. I looked up and saw two red and green lights moving slowly along a mile or so from the shore. Taking our guns and the provisions and flasks we had brought with us, we crept through the rushes and out onto the shingle, till we were within twenty yards of the tower. So close were we that I could see every detail— the ladder leading up to the door of the tower halfway up the wall was plainly visible, as was also the old rusty twenty-four-pounder pointing uselessly out to sea. The tower itself was almost in ruins, and here and there the brickwork of the walls showed through the stucco which had been worn off by time. It was a calm night, and only the wash of the sea broke the stillness. I stretched myself out on the rough, loose boulders and shingle, and laid my gun by my side. Hour after hour crept by. The vigil we were all keeping was sufficiently strange and exciting to keep us wakeful and attentive. Presently a night breeze arose, and sighed among the bulrushes in the marshes behind us, but all within the tower was absolutely silent. Not a light showed through the chinks of the windows, not a footfall came to our ears. From where I lay I could watch the lights of the yacht move to and fro in the black darkness. The slow hours dragged on, and still nothing happened. At last dawn began to break. It grew brighter each moment. I was just turning towards Ford for our signal to go back to the boat, when suddenly I saw him leap up, raise his gun, and a loud report rang out on the still morning air. I leapt to my feet also, as did the others. The little window of the tower opened, and two revolver shots rang through it as Tyler, Dufrayer, and three of the men rushed up the ladder. I followed them immediately, at a loss to know what this sudden change of plan meant. In a few moments we had smashed down the flimsy wooden door, and had come in contact with four men, who, armed with revolvers, greeted us from within. Our onslaught, however, was so sudden and unexpected, that after a short but desperate resistance we had taken them all prisoners. They were immediately handcuffed, and Ford and Tyler, with the other police officers, led them out of the tower onto the beach. Ford's eyes were blazing with excitement, and to my surprise I saw a dead pigeon at his feet. "'A messenger to Welbeck Street, Mr. Head!' he exclaimed handing me what looked like a piece of cigarette paper. "'A carrier pigeon!' I cried, the meaning of his first shot now bursting upon me. "'Yes, and I had a lucky shot at it in this half-light,' he continued. "'But to tell you the truth, I half expected something of the kind, and, so to speak, lay in wait for that pigeon. "'Last night things came back to me, 
and I remembered that empty pigeon coat on the roof of the house in Welbeck Street. From the fact that a message was about to be sent to her, there is no doubt whatever that Madame has returned to her town residence. We will catch her for certain now, though how she has contrived to get into our house with our man watching it is more than I can say. Can you read this?' As he spoke, he put the cigarette paper into my hand. I scrutinized it closely. Written in very tiny letters, I read the following words. "'Stay in London. Don't come here. Danger.' "'Yes,' went on Ford. "'They spied us directly it began to set light, and seeing their game was up, dispatched this to Madame. But for that shot of mine she would probably have escaped us again. Now we have her safe.' "'But how?' I answered. "'The pigeon is dead, so she won't get the message, and in all probability will come down to Hastings to-day or to-night.' "'We will keep her in London,' said Ford, looking extremely knowing and much excited. "'Oh, yes, she will have her message all right, and in two hours from the present time. Bring them along, Tom.' One of the men was now seen descending the ladder with a wooden cage in his hands, in which were fluttering two more pigeons. "'By Jove!' I cried, seeing what he meant. "'This is splendid.' "'Yes, and it is about the smartest bit of work I have ever done,' he replied. "'And we owe it all to Miss Beringer. She has given us the clue.' As he spoke, he handed me another piece of cigarette paper, exactly like the one on which the first message had been written. "'You might make things a bit stronger, Mr. Head,' he said. I thought a moment, and then wrote, "'Stay in Welbeck Street until one of us comes to you. Important. Danger, if you stir.' Ford's eyes glittered as he read my words. He attached the little note deftly to the neck of one of the birds. "'There, off you go,' he exclaimed. "'It's lucky birds can't talk.' He tossed the pigeon into the air. The bird rose rapidly in gradually increasing circles, and then shot off in a straight line for the north, and so was lost to view, bearing my message to Madame Colucci. As the pigeon darted up into the air, I heard one of the prisoners utter an exclamation, and saw him turn to his fellow. This action of ours had evidently taken him completely by surprise. The man at whom he looked made no reply, even by a glance, but folding his arms across his breast, stood motionless as if at attention. A glance showed me all too plainly that, desperate as the men were, they were at least true to Madame. Even death by torture, did such await them, would not induce any one of the Brotherhood to betray their chief. They were all well-dressed and had the appearance of gentlemen. They took their apparently hopeless fate with stoicism and did not attempt any escape. By this time the sun had well risen, and a glorious morning had chased away the gloom of the night. Placing our prisoners in the boat, we pulled round to a lower part of the shore. Here a trap met us by appointment, and in less than an hour we were all on our way to London. Success had at last rewarded our efforts. We had secured Madame's gang, and now it would be an easy feat to make Madame herself our prisoner. End of chapter 9, part 1